Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for loving us, calling us to be your children, for blessing us. And this morning as we, uh, as we watch a, a video and hear some explanation, and, and then in the worship hour as we, we study and sing and fellowship, we just trust that you would be honored by that. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the plan was this morning to start Forensic Faith. But the books I ordered for you did not arrive because the company decided to wait seven days to fulfill the order, and then it takes six days to ship them. Yeah, well, you know, some people just aren't very responsive. So I'd placed the order in plenty of time to get here by ground from Timbuktu, but when you don't fulfill the order in the next day or so, then it's not enough time, and so we don't have that book. And we really need the book, the participant guide, in order to go through the videos and the, the discussions that are part of it. So this morning I have a, I have a video that I've been holding in, in abeyance for a while. It is also uh, Jay Warner Wallace, a uh, cold case detective from Torrance, California. And he, he is giving a lecture to a, a Christian academy in, I think it's West Palm, but I'm not certain. Um, and the title is, Is Christianity Anti-Science? We hear that a lot right now. And he, this, is, this is during COVID, so he even makes some, respond, some, some comments like that. So it, I think it's good for us to, uh, to hear more from guys like him. And, and this, I think this, this lecture will give you an, uh, the ability to, to know some facts that help you in that discussion, because we're often accused of being anti-science, flat earthers and all that. Even though religion was actually one of the first sciences. Well, as, as Jim Wallace will explain, the majority of the sciences, the majority of the science people in history have been Christians. The majority of the great discoveries in science have been by Christians. And even today, a significant number of the scientists are Christians. It is the, it is the vocal atheist evolutionists that get the press. And he'll explain all of that. I, I thought that's why this one would be a good one and it'd give us an idea to... Uh, and how to listen to, to Jay Warner Wallace, because we'll be doing that over the next eight weeks. The, when we start Forensic Faith, it won't be an entire 45 minutes of, of video. There's only like 10 or 12 minutes of video in each lesson. There's discussion, and he's, he's going to step through the process of how you build a case. And so we'll be doing that. And so it's kind of cool. I like Forensic Faith is fun. And if you've gotten your books and started to read or listen to them, you'll, you'll be way ahead. Okay, this is uh, J. Warner Wallace is Christianity Anti-Science. Um, yeah, see? You know, um, I was not always a Christian. I was even raised in a Christian family. I was raised by a dad who was a detective also for about 30 years before I started doing this. And so I'm going to commit this in a weird way. Um, I was someone who would have said science is, is key. And a lot of my cases, I work only homicides that are unsolved. So if you've watched Dateline, I think I've been on Dateline more than any other person in the country. But these are just unsolved murders. And now my son gets to do the same kind of thing. He's been raised in the same family. We have the same name, Jim Wallace. We use the same name over and over again. He got that for me. He got my his uniforms and his patches for me. I got that stuff from my dad. So we've been at the same agency working these kinds of cases for about 60 years. All right, so I'm trying to transfer some information to you that I don't know how it's best to investigate Jesus. Now, now I'll tell you that I was asked to do this on a movie called God Not Dead Too. They gave me six minutes to make a case for Jesus. 
Now, today we have about 45 minutes to do it, but we're going to give you a bunch of information that's going to feel to bring water out of fire hose. Okay, are you ready? We're just going to get started. I'm going to teach you how to work the time scene. So we do all up and more time scenes. Um, I want you to imagine a thought experiment for me. I want you to imagine a dystopian future version of the United States or the world in which they have figured out a way to collect and destroy every single New Testament ever written, every manuscript, and so they took all one big pile and just burn it. So now there's not a single New Testament describing Jesus at all. They're all gone. Well, how do we know anything about Jesus? It turns out Jesus is the kind of beings that cannot be erased, even if you erase every New Testament. That seems unusual and frightening to me. Look, I've had a number of cases where you get to the crime scene and there's like evidence in the crime scene. You've got a body, you've got blood spatter, you've got a weapon, you've got all kinds of material evidence, and you're able to kind of reconstruct the scene. You can put like a table around the scene and you can rebuild the scene. But I've also had a lot of cases where there's no evidence in the crime scene at all. Like a woman, a man kills his wife. And um, he says, Oh, she's got this argument, and she just ran off. I haven't seen him in three days. Really? Now, he's effectively destroyed the body, but he's telling us that he hasn't seen him in three days. So, the crime scene, by the way, by somebody who came 30 years later, there's not a single piece of evidence taken of the property. There's, there's not a single photograph taken of the crime scene because it was taken as a missing person's case. So, how do you, uh, I might suspect it's the husband. I have to do. But the question is, how do I make a case where I have nothing in the crime scene? No evidence in the crime scene. These are called no-body murders. Deals hate these cases because you've got to prove number one that there was a murder. And then you've got to prove he's a murderer. So I always tell juries in the trial that, remember, a crime is part of a sequence of events. There's a period of time before the crime and there's a period of time after the crime. Does that make sense? Now, if you want to know what happened on the day of the murder, it's kind of like, well, okay, if she just took off, that's no big deal. But if she was murdered, that would explode to the day. And all bombs that explode are preceded by a fuse. So the pen can arrive in the relationship. He's preparing to do something he shouldn't do. The fuse is burning for the jury to see after somebody's killed. And after she's killed, oh, trust me, there'll be shrapnel and debris all over the glass windows. This is how bombs work. So I tell jurors this. I'm going to tell you what happened on the day of the murder by simply examining the fuse and the fallout. The fuse and the fallout will show that there was a felony on the day of the murder. Does that make sense so far? Now, I'm going to show you what it looks like in the real trial, okay? Because I have a weird background. Before I became a police officer, I was interested in being the arts. So I get to create all of my own closing arguments for trials. This is what it actually looks like in the jury trial. We have all the events that lead up to the day's events, all the tensions that were arising, all of these things that were occurring. I know you like my spotlight thing, don't you? That's what it was. Anyway, but then, okay, so we kind of trace what's happening and how it's getting worse and worse. And then after he's encouraged, I guarantee he's going to do a bunch of stuff that's going to give him away. So we are looking at fears and fallout. That makes sense? Now, I did the same thing when I was trying to examine what happened in the first century. You realize it isn't the first, we call it the first century, but it isn't the first century. There were a bunch of centuries before the first century. So why are we calling this the first century? Well, it turns out, I think there's a bunch of news events and a bunch of fallout events that will tell us what happened in the first century. If you didn't have a single Bible, if you didn't have a single New Testament, I can still reconstruct what happened in the first century from just the fuse and the fallout. This cannot be said of anyone else in history, but it can be said of Jesus of Nazareth. So I just want to show you a couple of things in the fuse, or one thing in the fuse, and one thing in the fallout. I want to talk about how empires have a big deal about what happened in the first century. They have a huge impact. So let me just go back and take a look at our hero timeline. Okay, so that blue area is what we call the common era, I think all like BC and AD. But all the stuff that we all need to do that are Christians BC before Christ. But in Atheist, I call it the BC before the common era. So the question, of course, is would you think BCE or BC? Something happened over there at the question mark. I'm trying to figure out why do we call that 
and for their century. So let's just take a look at this whole thing. There's the bomb that occurs. It turns out there's a fuse. And one aspect of the fuse has to do with the rise and fall of the nation. Why? Because nations have certain technology. Look, if someone comes in the first century and he's spectacular, or how would we know about it today? Well, we wouldn't know about it today unless you could write it down. If you couldn't write it down, it's too early in history. So it turns out we've got to have the rise of writing. Is what you might Look, early on, we didn't have alphabets. We just had this stuff over here called a pictograph, okay? And pictographs are different images that kind of represent words. In all kinds of different cultures and music, you'll see all different kinds of pictographs. But I'll tell you what, if this is alive at this point in history, you won't even be able to describe this film on the map because pictographs are super limited. Even if they don't want to see the cute ones, those are so much more helpful. And they're usually in play or stones. You can't travel with them. You can't travel with the message until you can write it down on the papyrus. But now this doesn't seem good. But we still have an alphabet. There's the problem. But if you wait long enough in history, an alphabet emerges. Some of the earliest alphabets are Persian, and they're pretty decent alphabets, but still they lack balance. So the difference between so, sa, and um, and sal, you can't tell the difference in those three words unless you change the vowels, but there are no vowels available yet, so it's just going to be harder to do. And there are other uh, places where alphabets emerge, like in Greece, but they still don't have vowels until an alphabet is called the Etruscan alphabet. This alphabet has vowels. It becomes very popular, and guess where it emerges? It emerges, fortunately, in Italy. And it becomes the alphabet of the Roman Empire. And as the Roman Empire grows, this alphabet starts to travel. And now we have a way to write it down on papyrus and an alphabet that we can use. So you see the development of, if, you, if Jesus comes into any of these places, you wouldn't know much about it. But if he waits until there's an alphabet, now we can write down everything. And the story of Jesus has a way to Does that make sense so far? It turns out that a lot of this really does come down to Rome. Now, Rome's got an interesting history, right? It starts off as a city-state in the Italian Peninsula, but eventually it kind of grows into an empire. And it takes over more and more territory. It reaches into the entire Italian Peninsula, and eventually, because of its excellence in terms of war, it takes over the entire known world at the time. And so, if you see what happens, this actually gives us an opportunity to spectacular what happened in the first century. Why? Because this guy, Augustus Caesar, he comes in. And he takes over the entire. As a matter of fact, there is a period of peace that he reigns over. If, if you were to come in any of those periods, wherever you might be, you have limited impact globally because the empire you happen to appear in is still relatively small. Uh, we need to give you an idea of this. Here's a map. So here's the size, for example, of some of the earliest empires in history. Here's the size, for example, of the Egyptian Empire. If you arrive at this point in history, that's how far you would be known. Here's an example of the Persian Empire. This is a slightly larger empire. Here's another one. This is the Greek Empire. Then Rome comes in and basically knocks it out of the park and connects to everything as far south and as far east as you can go. We have the Silk Road all over China. So here's an empire that if you show up at this period in history, you have that kind of empire. It turns out that's exactly what Jesus just shows up. And this period of time, this 200-year period of time, between those two emperors, it's called the Pax Romana. You know why it's called that? Because Rome is so powerful that there's no more war. There's a lot of wars in the history of humans, but there's a 200-year period of peace in the Pax Romana. And why is that important? Because what they're spending their money on now, they're not spending it on war. They're spending it on infrastructure. They're building roads. So if you look at the history of like, the real if you show up anywhere early in history like this, there aren't even any roads at this point in history. They're just using those vehicles to either war or they're using them for agriculture. The first real road system shows up much later in history in Persia. Persia is probably pretty cool, actually. So, you have Persian roads. They're pretty decent. And by the way, if you have roads, you can have a postal service. And the Persians had a decent postal service. But other cultures come and talk to the Persians. The Greeks did not have a lot of good roads. You know why they didn't have a lot of good roads? Because they were a shipping uh, economy. Rather than drive down the highway on the coast, they would just take a ship. And Greece is pretty hilly. You don't see a lot of roads.
of the indulgence we just had, but from turning our organs to mind of their presence. You guys ever read the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation written by John describes seven churches. Two of those seven churches who don't even exist is not for the fact that Paul planted them using the roads built during this period that weren't available to him a hundred years earlier. So the church is growing largely because we've got roads that connect us as far as we can in this direction. And it's not just that. Romans were not so cunning they were building roads because they were good people. They were building roads getting ready for the next war. That's this. And they were moving large armies down these roads and large war machines. And guess what? Armies and the war machines don't turn corners like so when they got to places, rather than turn a corner, they would just go over it or through it. And that's why during this period, in antiquity, more bridges and tunnels were being built than under any other dynasty. The Romans knew how to get things done. So if you show up, in these times in history, you really can't travel the message well. But if you show up over there in the first century, now your message can travel. Now, the coincidence in the first century is something big is about to happen because all the culture is learning that. As a matter of fact, it's not just this one last piece. It turns out that the Roman Empire was smart. It decided that I conquer a group, I'm going to let you keep your gods. Wasn't always true. There were lots of civilizations that existed before the Roman Empire, but here's the few. Now, it turns out these civilizations that preceded the Roman Empire, they all had their own gods. But it turns out that if one nation destroys another, they would kind of eliminate their gods. Now, there was a pattern. You always eliminate the gods of the prior culture. Well, okay, so the Romans come in, and the Romans say, you know what? And by the way, you'll see this in history. You'll see that sometimes a culture will come in and they'll eliminate all the gods of its prior. But Rome doesn't do that. Rome says, you can keep your gods, just so long as you worship our kids. And then it says, you know what? As a matter of fact, we'll even take some of your gods. And here's a Greek god adopted by the Romans and they changed their names. So they would collect their gods. So it turns out, if you spoke in history sometime earlier, there's a good chance that your gods would have been eliminated. But if you show up in the first century under the Roman Empire, you get a chance to get started because the Romans collected everyone's gods. And that was the difference. All of these burned up to the first century, and the Romans basically said, You can join us as long as you're part of the pantheon of God. And that's basically what happened. Now, I'm showing all this to you because I wanted you to be able to see that this is the fuse that burned up to the first century. This fuse actually takes us and tells us something. All of these things are the aspects of Roman culture that burned up to the first century. And I'm showing this for a real reason. If you ask the question, why does Jesus come when he comes? I've always asked that question. If you get them earlier, you can come later. Well, it turns out there's a huge brain that opens up a window of opportunity. Let me show it to you. I'm trying to hear this. Remember all the gods I showed you? Did you know that those gods have some things in common? There's like 15 attributes of ancient mythological gods that they share. Only one person in all of history has all 15 attributes of Mass Jesus of Nazareth. So if you think, oh, my God can work miracles, but Jesus can Oh, my God appeared miraculously, Jesus appeared miraculously. Oh, my God promised eternal life, well, Jesus promised eternal life. So I'm going to put to you on the timeline all of the gods that are worshipped in mythology before Jesus. I just want you to see that. Here's a shot of it. So the start time and the end time for our shadows. Here's another one. I'm going to show you all the gods and we're going to overlap them. Here's one to show you this. If you wanted to come at a time in history when people are still worshiping myths, but you are going to personify more robustly than anyone else in history all of the attributes of God, you would want to come and overlap when all of those gods are being worshipped. So that means I'm looking for an overlap. And there it is. So there's the red zone overlap of when all these gods are being worshipped. So if you show up in that period, you have a great chance for impact because those people are actually thinking about God already and you're going to meet their expectations when you see them. Okay, let me give you one more overlap. Remember all the things we talked about with the Roman Empire? I just want to put that in here now. So I'm just going to put in the Roman Empire when it starts. I'm going to put in all that technology about papyrus and about uh, uh, writing instruments and about 
usually been with them for when it's been high stops, and then here's the kind of thing on. That period of peace. Now I'm going to point out now the overlap of all of these things. Here's the overlap. Much smaller. But now the Jewish community had prophets who predicted the coming of the Messiah. One of them is a guy named Daniel, and he predicts the Messiah will come between the order to, re, um, to restore Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Well, I know that happens in history, so that's what, that's what Daniel said he said that Messiah is going to come. But now I've got a new overlap. So here's the new overlap. Right there. It so happens that there's the overlap that separates the Florida common era from the common era. It's right there. And it just so happens that in the middle one year is a hundred year period of time, and right in the middle is a 33 year lifespan of Jesus in the middle So it turns out he comes right when he needs to come to have the most incredible impact based on the future. This is why Paul, for example, in Galatians talks about this. Paul says it this way he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Which is describing, he's describing that fullness of time. So we go back to our blast um, radius. Here's our fears and here's our problems. Here's what I want to encourage you. How many of you here in this school are studying the science of your Raise your hand. a high so I can see it. That's a lot. Right? So I have a son. One of my sons is a police officer, and the other son is a, a biochemist. And now he's a doctor. He's a pediatric anesthesiologist. Okay. The science doesn't matter to our family. I think most people think that the sciences don't matter to Christians. All these stupid Christians who won't wear a mask, who won't get vaccinated, who think that even science is really dense. That's why we don't believe in science as a Christian. As a matter of fact. That's not an area of fallout for Jesus. Absolutely, no, it isn't actually an area of fallout when it comes to Jesus. It's whatever here. I'm going to show you. But here's the complaint I typically hear. It sounds something like this. We'd be 1,500 years ahead of heading into the church, dragging science back by its coattails, and burning our best minds at the stake. We would be so much further ahead if you people would just wear the mask, take the jab, and shut up. But you won't do it because you're so anti-science. This, by the way, was said by somebody who is an activist in the South. He's now passed away, but he just repeated all the time and quoted all the time. And this is the complaint. Is it true that we have been slowing down the sciences? Well, let's give you a, a, a brief timeline on this. Here's a timeline 4,000 years, okay? Now, let's take a look at new science emerges in the last 4,000 years. It starts by just establishing the philosophical and mathematical foundations of science. So those over here. And then there are some people who emerge in history. By the way, I did this by researching every scientist who's ever lived. And I went online and I found their stupid little face. And I put it in a stupid little white square for you guys, and I put them on this diagram, okay? So this is about what happens. Science just kind of bumps along for about a thousand years. But then there are significant steps in the history of science. It's almost like a, a geometric progression. And you'll see that over the centuries here, there's like steps. There's more people doing science. And so finally, we get to like the 16th and 17th centuries, and it explodes. And you have all the way to the current age. So these are the scientists that have done science over the years. Now, this, by the way, is the scientific revolution, 15th, 16th century. Okay? That's not our term as Christians. That's the secular term for this period. By the way, they call it that because. Every major scientific discipline is established in those two years. Now, what's interesting to me, look at this for a second. Where do you think in this sequence, this progression of science, where do you think Jesus falls? He falls right here. That's weird to me. Because he very easily could have fallen earlier in this time when these scientists just bumped around for another thousand years. Or he could have fallen much later in history when science is already taken off. Well, it's only later in history, even past like no more. No. Jesus shows up in the timeline before science begins to grow. Is that a coincidence? Or is he somehow a catalyst? Turns out he's a catalyst. This is endured by others. 
right? As a matter of fact, it makes this easy to this way. It turns out that in science, that's an organized system in enterprise, arose only the ones in human history in Europe under Christendom. But the action, everyone who was in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries were Christians, so duh. But it turns out there were many more people on planet Earth not who weren't in Europe than who were. And there were many more people on planet Earth who were not Christians than who were. So why is it happening here? Why isn't it happening in Korea? Why isn't it happening in China? Why isn't it happening in Africa? Why isn't it happening here? Something about a Christian worldview. Let me get some clues. So take a look at this first bump. You see that first bump? Huh? That first bump is when the Christianity becomes legal in the Roman Empire. That's kind of interesting, right? That first bump is when Christianity becomes the second bump. That second bump is when monasteries and cathedral schools are first formed. These later became universities. Now, this bump's interesting here. This bump is not entirely Christian. There's an extra bump in the line because of a group who comes in who does incredible science. They're called Muslims. They do great science from the 6th century to the 13th century, but they stopped altogether. For largely theological reasons, they made a choice to step out of the sciences. That's something a cautionary tale for us, folks. Because we could choose to step out of the sciences. But it turns out we should. Now, here's another bump right here. This bump is the formation of the first three modern universities. These universities are Christian. That's right, we invented the modern university at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. And then we see a bump. This bump up here is something called a printing press. Invented by a Christian in first printing what? A Bible. This bump up here is a Reformation. Now, it could be coincidence, but it turns out that when you look at all the people in that group, they are mostly Christians. They clump it, they dominate the oversized representation of the sciences. I just want to show you how ridiculous we have crushed the sciences. Again, I had to find all those. My wife said, as I was doing this, she's like, she's so smart compared to me. She's like, hey, why did you find all those faces that came out sharp? I said, because I wanted to be accurate. She said, yeah, but like, nobody can see the faces that are covered up by the top one on the list. Why not just put this guy in? Does it really matter what goes on? You don't see him. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wasted like three years. Put those stupid pictures in for you. I did it for you guys, okay? It's going to get even weirder because now I'm going to do my show the blast radius on Jesus. And imagine we have a hall of fame of just scientists who are Christians. We started early. I did the same thing here. I put these guys in a little bus, like the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. So here's the Hall of Fame. These are the most ancient scientists in the common era end up being Christians. This is who they are. I've done three lines for you, and I now I'll put them in a bus on a stand in a Photoshop, creating a clear background PNG, and I'll stick it in PowerPoint for you. Okay? Yeah, you're welcome. Here we go. That's the first one. By the way, one of these guys is the father of the discipline. That means he initiated the discipline. Okay, let's go one more step. Let's go to the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages are not dark. I don't know why they call them the Dark Ages. These are the scientists, just the tip of the iceberg scientists from the Dark Ages. These are fathers of discipline. Okay, here's the next stage up. This is the Middle Ages. And these are the, the science fathers in the Middle Ages. Some of them are women. Science mother, but she is a couple science father regardless of her. So we go. Here's the next one. This is the Renaissance. And then we're going to go up. Now I'm going to show you what we call the scientific revolution. 16th century, about. This is a lot of having to find a lot of faces. Here they are. This is just Christian. Okay, trust me, if you add up every other group of thinkers, combine them all, times ten, you won't get to this number. That's the dominance we have in the sciences. What did you see? Oh, by the way, these are the, I saw these guys right away. I thought, who are these guys the father of? These are guys the father of every stupid 1990s Christian rock band. I think it's really awesome. Look at them. Don't they just look like they belong in that band? I think they do. It turns out they're actually the fathers of scientific discipline. Let me show you the fathers who they are. 
So I want to show you, now some of these are awards. The earliest scientific awards are given by academies founded by Christians. And these are the academies that they founded. And I'm going to show you a little bit more here. Let's go, oh, now we're in that period, though. Oh, there we go, Darwin. So Darwin steps on this scene, and now I would expect there to be fewer Christians doing sciences after Darwin in the modern period, because Darwin said, you don't need God, I can explain it some other way. So I would expect there to be fewer Christians doing science. You might think that too, if you did, you'd be wrong, because they actually killed this person, but also far more people are involved in modernity doing science as Christians. As a matter of fact, here are some of these uh, people who are doing science and just evolutionary sciences. These are Christians working on evolutionary theory. So that's why you can see that they, for the most part, uh, they weren't ignorant of what Darwin was doing. And many of the fathers of evolutionary sciences are Christians. Let me go back to this for a second. So here are church, um, sorry, our science fathers. I want to show you the disciplines, just a few of the disciplines that Christians have formed from modern chemistry, modern biology, all the way to quantum mechanics. We found all of these disciplines. I don't care what you're studying at this school, whatever you're studying, whatever you're geeked out about in science, we started it. It's on that wall. Every single scientific discipline is on that wall. And Christians founded all of them. We have founded every major scientific field of study. It's just the way it is. All the way to computer science. We started all those. Let's go back to that darn for a second. A lot of these folks, it turns out, were award winners. I want to show you some of those. We've won every major scientific award. We won all the awards. Those are all the good ones. We also won all of those awards. Oh, we also won all of those awards. And we won all of those awards. And we won all of those awards. See on the bottom? That's the one you guys know. That's the Nobel Prize. So we the Nobel Prize. How many good Christians are on? Well, it turns out that we know what the good world views are. About 10% are atheists or agnostic. That's it. A lot of minor uh, worldviews, but this is a large group of Jewish believers. These are the Christians. When it comes to Nobel Prizes in the sciences, you can add everybody else up times three. That's us. That's how dominant we have been in the sciences. I've only shown you dead guys so far. I want to show you some living guys. Here's some living guys right here. These folks are still alive. They're less than 70 years old. In the last 70 years, this is a group. Two of these folks are actually endorsing the last book we wrote because they're award winners. Michael Beebe and again, and he insured at Rice University of Texas. He has a normal chemist. You do not have to be a secularist or an atheist to be good scientists. Turns out that we've been doing good science for a long time. Every major branch of science we've initiated, and we've outperformed every other group combined. Combined. So, I'm going to show like this. And if you ever have somebody say this to you, I can only trust you if it's given with science. I can only trust scientists. I can't trust non scientists. Have you ever heard that statement? I hear it all the time. Okay, well, let me show you something. This is the entire, in the first 300 years, there were a lot of early Christians who repeated the story of Jesus. So if you didn't have the New Testament, you could just look at the writing of these church fathers, they're called, and you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from just the church fathers. But it turns out that I can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the science fathers. Because these folks wrote about Jesus, and if you didn't have the New Testament, but you had the writings of the science fathers, Throughout history, you would know everything there is to know about Jesus. You would know, for example, everything there is to know about his life. You'd know everything there is to know about his teaching, everything he preached. You'd know everything about his statements to his disciples. This is all reconstructed, not from Scripture. This is reconstructed from the statements of the science fathers. You cannot erase Jesus' ministry, his mission. You cannot erase Jesus. And by the way, these scientific, uh, uh, these scientists, they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed that he was doing miracles. That's why you can be a scientist and believe in miracles. They believed in his deity. That's why they believed in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. They believed all of this, and they were still doing science. 
turns out that the science scholars actually agree with the church scholars. As a matter of fact, if I didn't have a New Testament, and I had the church scholars, I could read the data about Jesus, and I had the science scholars, and I could read the data about Jesus, I would learn more about Jesus from the science scholars than I would from the church scholars. This is more data than it you will not erase Jesus from history because he is impacted by scientists. So if someone says to you, well, I can only trust what the scientists tell me, I would ask a simple question. Do you trust what scientists say about Jesus? Because it turns out you can make them trust everything about Jesus from scientists. That makes a difference. It's not just a scientist. You know, we started off with this temple, right? But we want to talk about the sciences, and that's fine. But it turns out it's not just science that Jesus has had an impact on. The other stuff has had an impact that's even more remarkable. For example, there's not a single person in history who has been written about more than Jesus in the history. He's the number one character in everyone's story. If you go to the Library of Congress and search, no one's been written about more than Jesus. Go to Google Books and search, no one's been written about more than Jesus. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from non-Christian authors in the first 300 years. You will not destroy Jesus by destroying Scripture. It turns out all the details of the Jewish, Jesus story are recoverable. You do all of this from non-Christian sources in antiquity. You're not going to get the story of Jesus that It's not just that. It's in the arts. I mean, you know, I like the arts. I mean, I love the arts. I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture. I call it architecture. But the point is, I love the arts. No one has been more influential than Jesus in the arts. No one has been painting, sculpting, or drawing more than Jesus of Nazareth. Did you know that? In the history of art, whatever it is in your life, expressionism, impressionism, Dadaism, whatever your ism is, search for the top three artists. Those top three artists, they have one uh, subject in common. They've all painted or been inspired by Jesus of Nazareth. It's true. This is not true. Any other historical figure, no one's been painting as much as Jesus. It's not just that. It's if you can reconstruct the story of Jesus, all of those episodes in the Gospels are available in paintings in the first 400 years. It destroyed all of the buildings where those paintings exist in order to get the story of Jesus. And it's music, too. Now, I know in this room, there's probably a lot of different ideas of what this is music. I don't care what it is you like. If it's all about hip hop or country, I don't care what your scope is. It turns out you owe a bit of gratitude to Jesus followers because we have crushed it in music. We are behind. I did a research on the top 100 artists in the last 100 years on Grand TV, Billboard magazine, and Rolling Stone. It to be about 150 total. All of them have sung about music. This cannot be said. And some of them are really not great. They're, 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 they're derogatory. But they sing about Jesus anyway. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus. By the way, do you like harmonies? Well, you can make the Christian direction. You can make the harmonies. Oh, you like to hear a reading musical invitation? Well, we invent the musical invitation. You can hear some of these. Oh, do you like, like maybe scales and minor scales? We invented those. Most of the instruments you're playing today, we invented those. Where else in the world do people get in front of an audience every week to sing? It's called the church. This is why most of the feels like the voice in American Idol is dominated by people who learn how to sing where? In the church. They crush it. And just from the music of the first 300 years of the common era, you can reconstruct the entire life of Jesus. No one else is to be said about it. And we talked about education and science. I tell you, tell you what. The top 15 universities in the world today do data research. They're all founded by Christians. Top 15 in the world. If you go to those campuses and look at the buildings in those campuses, it turns out that the buildings in those campuses scream of Jesus. Because there's pictures and images and scriptures that still on those campuses. So just the campuses of the top 15 schools, you can learn all of that about Jesus. Are you willing to destroy those campuses? You have to get rid of Jesus. That's the kind of impact he's had. And of course, the last one is every world religion loves Jesus. Did you know that? He's on the page in Islam on the Quran. I'm a, a Mahdi Muslim, a prophet, Buddhist leaders, Hindu leaders, they all think Jesus is one of them too. Buddhist leaders think that Jesus is on the way to Buddha, but he's either wise teacher. We 
many groups that have all adopted Jesus in one way or the other. And just from non-Christian scripture and teachers, you would know this about Jesus. So unless you want to destroy those religions as well, you can't get rid of the feelings of Jesus. This guy has had more impact than anyone else. Why? Why this guy? Why would this guy have this kind of impact? He's a nobody. Think about it. He's a nobody. Let me show you, for example, all the other people in the first century who could have initiated the first century. These are the biggest leaders in the first century globally. From as far east to as far west, here they are. Take a look at them. Do you recognize any of those names? One or two. They don't matter. They didn't change history. Here's a list of all the other world leaders in the history of world leaders. These folks didn't even change history the way the Jesus did. They give the list of every other religious figure in the history of religious figures. These people have not been written about, sung about, drawn, painted, influenced education, influenced science like Jesus of Nazareth. These are the other people who claim to be the Jewish Messiah. Did you know there were more? There were other people who claimed to be Messiah for the first 13 centuries of the common era. Here they are. Do you recognize their name? No. Why? Because they don't matter. They didn't change anything. But Jesus, though, ends up changing all of it. Why? This guy was, he was born in the middle Raised in the middle of the town. This guy only has three years to get his entire ministry done. He only travels about 200 miles from start to finish. He doesn't have a family, doesn't have a proper education, doesn't have kids to extend his ministry, he has no TikTok, no Instagram, he has no video Facebook, he's got nothing that would actually build a platform. The people who said they were powerful, they would chase him down to kill him. People who were religious were hunting him. The people who said they loved him and they were his friends and family members, they betrayed him and left him. He is falsely accused, brutally executed on the cross, and then the whole thing is said and done, they have to borrow a grave. Yet this guy, this nobody, changes everything. Why? Nobody else. You can't, you can't think of a fictional character that's had this impact on him. Who would it be? Luke Skywalker? Peter Pan? Think of a fictional character. Who has had this kind of impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions? Nobody. Okay, how about this? Think of a human who's had this kind of impact on religion. Who's had this kind of impact on art, music, literature, education, science, and world religion. Look, if you can't think of a fictional character who can do this, there's a good reason to believe he's not a fictional character. And if you can't think of a human who can do this, there's a good reason to believe he's not a human. There's something about Jesus that tells you he's not even a person of interest at all. Because he's not a person. Only God entering into his creation has this kind of ripple effect. So I do think this is evidence of something. Now, we've got a few minutes. I want to take a few questions from you guys. The first question is really hard to ask. We're going to skip to go to the second question. So somebody raise your hand with the second question, and we'll get it on my microphone. Come on now. Yeah, raise your hand, raise your hand. And it can be any objection you have, whatever it is. Back here. They're coming. It's coming to see me. There's somebody that wants to. If you've got a question, come down. So you can ask it. I'm going to see you. Junior, good job, good job, good job. Okay. Hey, 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 hold on, hold on. Oh, there are two questions. Do you enjoy being a cold case detective? Do I enjoy being a cold case detective? Yes, yes. I can tell you that, that if you think about it, I have cases where I open up a report, a notebook, you put in the red books there, I'm sorry, open up the report, and I see that in the report, I've got no access to the witness because the witness is not dead. And the guy who wrote the report, he's been dead for 10 years too. So now I've got to figure out what happened 35 years ago when I got no access to the witness or the report writer. That's the same as the gospel. 
have no access to the witness of the report writer, but it turns out you can test these kinds of supplementary reports and show them that it's true. So that, for me, is what brought me to Christianity is my work as a cold case detective. And yes, great. Any questions? Come on down here. All right, John. All right, so what are your thoughts on evolution? My thoughts on evolution. Okay, so I'm not a statistic on evolution. I think it's the, I honestly don't think, if you believe that God uses a process by which he pre-structures a series of physical constants, so that in the end we end up with this. Well, I think there are people who can figure out a way to God to use evolution. I'll say that. I am not one of those people, though, because I think evolution by definition means the unguided process by which space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry is impacted by environment. It's an unguided process. Theism is, by definition, a guided process. So when you believe in theistic evolution, you say you believe in the guiding process of unguiding processes. It's not too long. So I believe that God creates a progressive step. So do you. Because you could break it all into existence in one second. But apparently, you took six days if you were younger creationists, or you took six epic periods of time. The only thing we're debating about is how long is each step take. That's why I refuse to divide from the church over this debate about how long each step takes. We all believe this. We believe that there's no way to account for DNA without a mind. Think about that for a second. Let me offer it to this one. I walk into a room with a dead guy on the floor. He's on the floor and there's blood spatter on the wall. Now, I think about it. Is this a murder? Now, it might not be. If he had a heart attack and fell, hit his head, that would account for the blood spatter. Blood spatter is a physical chemistry acting on his blood. If he committed suicide, if he committed pills, goes unconscious, hits his head, blood spatter, so it's a sin. If, um, if he wants to accidentally, he trips, hits his head, blood spatter, it's a sin. So here's an accidental, natural, and suicide, fail with the sin. Now, how about this? I walk in the same room, and instead of blood spatter on the wall, I see written in his blood, he deserved it. I think I'm looking for a suspect. How about you? Because I cannot explain that he deserved it with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. Information requires a mind. DNA is information in the genome. It requires a mind. If it's information in the genome, I cannot believe that this is an unguided process. Minds have guided the process. We all agree on this. The only question is how long did it take? Oh, you want to go We're going to divide the entire room right now. Okay, real quick, because I'm going to have something. Okay, so I'll say this to you. I never argue about how some... So if we have a murder, five of us on the team, we have a theory about how he did it. Now, we can demonstrate to a jury that he did it, but we do not make a case about how he did it. If it's really wrong, and the jury thinks we're wrong about that, they might think we're wrong about the other thing. So I don't... We ask, we're all debating. Oh, I think he did this. Oh, I think he did that. Well, sometimes they will confess to us. If they confess to us, we will ask them, how did you do it? And every time that happens, all five of us are wrong. Because we don't think like bad guys. Like, we think like we're trying to be rational about this, and he wasn't being rational on that day. I do not have to know how he did it to know that he did it. And I won't divide from my co-workers over that how question. So I don't know how God did it, but I know there's more than enough reason to believe that he did it. So I just stay in that way, so I'm not going to give you an answer. Your question, Zane. Right. We'll do the last question, then. Okay, I'll make two questions. Go. So, the first one is, how long have you been pursuing? Yes. What did you say? I'm still too tired when I'm making my question. So, I'm looking at the detective, and I had a skill set in place, and I was the biggest jerk atheist you ever met. Because there's no Christians in my family. And my dad is somebody who's a jerk atheist. So, I was going to be like, come on. And by the way, all the people we met who were Christians and law enforcement, the officers we met, they could not tell me why this was true. Well, they could give me five reasons why this is our killer. If you can give me five reasons why you trust the Bible, like you care about killers more than your own Bible. Like, if you can do that, why can't you do this? And the other group we met who were Christians were all the bad. I watched the guys we're going to recover. I watched the guys do a bank robbery. Okay, then chasing out of the bank, they hop in a car, I just when I said, I'll go get him back in my car. He tells me how he had been a Christian about a year. He did bank robberies. 
So I was like, you know what? If this is what Christians are, you people who can't defend yourself, or people don't want to like this too, I don't want you to come So that's that. I was 35 when I first started that. I think I was 32. And then the last one is just what is your favorite my favorite case I ever did, uh, and we talked about some of the classes earlier, um, a little case that the, uh, the 1972 10-year-old girl killed on Thanksgiving Day. It was terrible. I was about 11 uh, years old at the time. My dad worked the case, and he was very disturbed by it. He didn't let go out of the house for like three weeks. I think because he thought, this case got snapped off the street. I opened the case. My dad retired. I opened the case in 2003. I found him in the was not that he was going to be killed. I submitted it to our database in 2006, um, and eventually it ended up being ancestry DNA. Thank you to all of you who are searching for your ancestors because now it makes it possible for all of us to take all your family members to jail and go into that. So ancestry DNA hit in 2017, and we cleared the case in 2019. So from 1972 to 2019, that was an open case. When we finally identified the guy, he had been dead about 15 years. So in some cases, you, you close them, you solve them, but you don't get justice. Because they really want justice. Right? And when I say justice, they really want is they want to convict the guy, and they want the guy to say he's sorry. So sometimes even when you get a conviction, it doesn't feel like it solves much, because they feel like the killer is still unrepentant. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. And stay tuned for just a minute. Um, if you guys have, listen up, listen up, and then I'll get you guys out of here, okay? If you guys have more questions, you actually have a chance to ask um, Mr. Wallace this afternoon. Um, if you come to the Reasonable Faith chapter meeting in Building 114, you have a chance to just ask him questions. You can be there all afternoon. It's going to be the whole time with you and me. And so if you have those questions, I invite you to come out to them in 114. It's going to be a time that we can just ask anybody. And he's willing to stay with you guys, okay? So can we thank Mr. Wallace one more time for his, his time here in front you guys? Okay, we're running a little over, but thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. Thank you for this uh, informative lecture on uh, is Christianity anti-science. Father, we, uh, we ask now that you would uh, meet with us in the worship hour, that our fellowship and our music and our study would all bring us to worship of you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God.